Well, do please uh, turn with me to page 1014 in the Bibles and the end of Mark chapter 9. I don't know if you've uh, noticed in the uh, service sheet, it's, it's not often that you have to give a talk with the title Amputate. Uh, but then Jesus' words here are uncompromising, aren't they? Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's all the more striking when we realise who he's talking to. Uh, This is not Jesus before the pagan crowds, uh, a warning of eternal judgment. No, this is Jesus talking to the twelve. We see that back in verse 35. This is him talking to his closest disciples, uh, men who have left everything to follow him. And yet to whom Jesus here delivers a chilling warning that they are at risk of hell. Uh, So uh, unless we consider ourselves immune to the mistakes that Jesus' closest followers could have made, uh, we'd better take careful note of Jesus' words. They're words that come in the context of the disciples' confusion about where Jesus is heading and therefore confusion about where following him will take them. So if you flick back a page to verse 31, we see Jesus saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They didn't understand. Jesus' words in verse 31 aren't hard to understand, are they? They're not difficult. What the disciples can't understand is that Jesus is saying that he hasn't come for status, but rather for service. He's heading not towards a crown, but towards the cross. And that's not where they want to follow. Not at this stage. No, they don't want service. They want status. They want greatness. And so they start arguing about who's got it. You see verse 33, we saw this last time. They came to Capernaum. When Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Status or service, the crown or the cross. That's the context. And it's serious because as Jesus says here in our passage, it can make the difference between heaven and hell. And so Jesus gives them two warnings and one encouragement. The first warning is this. Don't let your pride judge others. See verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Don't let your pride judge others. Uh, The word for cause to sin here really means to cause someone to give up their faith. It's that serious. And who are these little ones? These little ones who believe in Jesus. Well, uh, last week if you were here, we saw three examples And we need to get this clear in our minds, I think, if we'll understand what follows. So again, uh, flick back a page. Verse 36, Jesus takes a little child 
in his arms and says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. See, the disciples, they're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, this little baby is the sort of person that you need to be concerned about. Someone of no status, no greatness. That's what it is to follow me. That's what it is to act in my name. The next example is the man in verse 38. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. See, here's a man who is serving the Lord, doing miracles in his name. See that phrase there again. But because he's not in the in crowd, because he's not one of the twelve, the disciples try to stop him. No doubt they're they're angry that this man's been able to do uh, the very thing that they couldn't do earlier in the chapter. And then the third example of these little ones who believe in Jesus is verse 41. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will not lose his reward. See, that is people who don't do the great things, the impressive things, the memorable things, but who do what seems so small, giving someone a cup of water. But they do it in Jesus' name because they love Jesus because they want to help their brothers and sisters. So the little ones here are those with no status like the child, those with no credentials like the man, those who do nothing special like the one giving water. And Jesus says, don't let your pride judge people like that. Because do you see what talking about status and greatness and pursuing those things will do to those people? It will make them conclude, oh well, I can't be a Christian then. I don't measure up. Talking about status is okay if you think you have it. Talking about greatness is fine as long as you think you're great. But what about the little ones? What about those who aren't proud and conceited and don't strive for those things? If we think that following Jesus is about status instead of service, then we will be driving away the people who realise they don't have status or greatness. And if we do that, it would be better for us to be flung into the sea, weighted down to drown than to face God's anger at what we have done. Now where might we be falling into this sort of mistake? Where can our actions and attitudes leave others feeling that they do not belong as part of God's people? Well here the disciples were challenged to to welcome even the little children, those with nothing going for them. Or do we welcome anyone? Or or do we instead place additional hoops that people need to jump through before they'll be one of us? Before they'll be accepted? Uh, Perhaps hoops of of worldly status. Uh, You're only a real Christian if you're respectable. Only successful people can come to Fullwood. 
perhaps hoops of religious status. Uh, You can't be a a real Christian if you're not in a, a small group. You can't be a real Christian if you've made a mess of your life in the past. Do we give off those messages? It doesn't have to be explicit. Of course it's not explicit. But we only need to ignore people. We only need to speak to others over coffee, but not them. To invite others for a meal or a drink, but never them. To be interested in hearing the views of others and never theirs. They'll soon get the message. Here the disciples want to exclude the man who wasn't part of their group. Do we set up similar cliques? These invisible barriers uh, which we don't let people through. So that being part of our fellowship isn't just about whether people trust Jesus. It's about other things as well. We reserve our our deepest relationships for those who have read the same Christian books as us or who go on the same conferences as us, who have led on the same teams as us, who've had a similar Christian background to us. At work or, or school, it's only those who go to the same church as us. And if people aren't or haven't done those things, then however unintentionally, we let them know that they're not one of us. And if we do that, who will be to blame if they say, well, if that's Christianity, then I don't want to be one of them. And then thirdly, the disciples looked down on those doing the the cup of water ministry. Or do we rank people according to their gifts, according to their ministry, their involvement in church? Are there Christian league tables in our minds? With some people firmly up there in the premiership, whilst others languishing down in the conference leagues. In our small groups, are there some who are made to feel that they have nothing to contribute, that everyone else is in a different league, and so they stop coming? Don't let your pride judge others. Don't make others give up their faith because they don't match up to to your warped view of the Christian life as one of status and greatness. That's the first warning here. The second is even closer to home. Don't let your pride lead to your judgment. See verse 43? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, if we want to play this judgment game, if we want to say that following Jesus is about status, and we have it, it's about greatness, and we're getting there, then actually it will lead us to hell. Because to look for status instead of service, to look for that crown, is to reject the way of the cross. Because who needs the cross when you're great? Which person of status needs to look to a crucified man for rescue? 
The two cannot go together. We cannot think that we're fantastic and at the same time be coming on our knees to Jesus for rescue and forgiveness. To seek status is to cause ourselves to sin, to cause ourselves to give up the faith. And only judgment will be left, but not ours. The judgment of God, and we will face hell. Now, hell isn't a a popular topic of conversation. Indeed, I can think of no topic that will be less well-received during a lunch break with a colleague or at a family gathering. Uh, The only times when hell is mentioned these days, it's either trivialised or used as a curse. Certainly it's never taken seriously. Oh, I know that there are some, perhaps some here, who, who think that hell is all we ever talk about. As though Christians like nothing better than to gleefully denounce the world and relish the coming judgment of God. Well, here Jesus treats hell very seriously and he is not gleeful. Instead, he implores his disciples to treat hell seriously as well, to do anything to avoid it, because it is awful. God's judgment is to be feared. Uh, The word hell here is Gehenna, which was the name of the sort of rubbish dump outside Jerusalem, a place which for many a year had been Uh, used in Jewish thought as a metaphor for judgment and cursing. It was a place where the fires were always lit, burning up the unending stream of rubbish, and where the worms never died, but grew fatter and fatter as they fed on rotting waste. And so here Jesus uses that to describe this judgment, this hell, A place of eternal judgment, the fires never going out. A place of eternal death, uh, the worms that would normally eat a corpse buried in the ground, uh, run out of food and then die. Here they never die, but feast. It's a terrible picture. Worse, Jesus says, than losing your hand or foot or eye. It's the very opposite, verse 47, of entering the kingdom of God and all the benefits and glory and joy. God's judgment is awful. So avoid it at all costs. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Amputate. You may have heard of Aaron Sorkin. He was in the news a few years ago now. He was a keen climber who who one day went out into the mountains near his home in Utah in the States. Uh, Unfortunately, there was a a rock fall and Aaron Sorkin was caught uh, underneath it and his lower arm was crushed under the weight of a three-ton boulder uh, that pinned him to the ground. And there he stayed for three days, gradually bleeding and starving to death until he came to the realisation that to be saved, he would have to cut through his arm with his penknife. It's gruesome enough just thinking about it. Uh, Here's the thing though, we don't even have that option, because our problem isn't with our hand, or our foot, or our eye. Those are not the source of this pride. This status-seeking, cross-denying pride. It's not in your hand. 
It's not in my foot. It's a point that Jesus has already made just a couple of chapters earlier. Flick back to chapter 7 and verse 21. Oh, verse 20 actually. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Where does sin reside? It's not in the hand or the foot, it is in the heart. Even there, it doesn't mean our literal hearts. It means it's the very core of who we are. That's where pride is found. And you cannot cut it out. That's not the source of pride that we can cut out. Instead, it is pride itself that must go. It's this desire for status that must go. The desire for greatness that we must leave behind. It must go. Because Jesus warns us, if it doesn't, our pride will lead us to judgment. But how do we do it? Well, that I think is the point of the final two verses there in chapter 9 again. The encouragement that Jesus gives. And it's this, I think. It's to humbly judge yourself in light of the cross. Humbly judge yourself in light of the cross. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, of all the verses in Mark's Gospel, these are the two uh, which have caused the most debate in commentaries. Just what is Jesus saying here? I hope, though, that if we think a little bit about salt and what it signifies, and if we fit that into the context in which Jesus says these words, then uh, we may find our way through. When we hear these statements about salt, I think we naturally think about table salt, uh, the salt that you sprinkle over your veg. And so people then talk about, well, salt, it it makes things tasty. It's a preservative for, for food, perhaps. Is that what's going on here? Well, they did have table salt back then, of course, but here Jesus is talking about quite a different sort of salt, it seems to be. Verse 50 is the clue. It's salt that can lose its saltiness. It's not talking about table salt. That's pure salt. can't lose its saltiness. He's talking about the grit in the yellow boxes on your street. If you leave the lid open and the rain gets in again and again, all the salt will get washed out and you'll be left with a bucket full of sand. No good for anything. Well, sand pits, but not for doing its job. It's that sort of salt. And I don't know your eating habits, but my guess is that you don't go with your buckets to to, to grab a, a bit of extra stock of grit to stick on your fish and chips. No, this salt isn't for making things tasty. In fact, in the Bible, the predominant use of the word salt are in connection with judgment. 
I guess you know the the most famous example of that, which is that of Lot's wife, who disobeys God and is turned into a pillar of salt. But this sort of salt also gets used time and again when an enemy city is destroyed and the victors would cover the land surrounding it in salt as a sign of judgment because the salt would prevent crops from growing. So, for instance, Jeremiah 48, verse 9, Put salt on Moab, for she will be laid waste. Her towns will become desolate, with no one to live in them. Salt wasn't something that was uh, for, for, for taste. Too much sugar, oh, you know that anyway. If you ever mistake sugar for salt and stick it in your tea, you, you know that it's not tasty. Too much salt and things die. They, they can't grow, they can't live. It's a sign of judgment. And that, I think, then fits into the context here as well. So, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, That is, we all face God's judgment. That's the point of these previous verses. Hell is serious. And so, verse 50, salt is good. Judgment is good. Right judgment is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? If we lose our judgments, if we lose our ability to see ourselves as we truly are, then how will we see anything? See, that's what pride does. Pride gives me a distorted view of who I am. I can no longer judge where I am before my Creator. I think that I'm okay if I'm proud. I think I've got enough status. I think I've achieved enough greatness. And so I won't come to the cross. So instead, verse 50, have salt in yourselves. Judge yourself rightly. Not thinking that you deserve special status. Not thinking that you're great. But instead humbly looking to the cross for forgiveness. Humbly judge yourself in light of the cross. That's what Jesus is saying here. And of course, that's what then leads to being at peace with each other. It's the pride that the status-seeking, greatness-seeking attitude of the disciples at the beginning of the chapter, or the beginning of verse 33, that has them arguing even as they're walking along the road. It pits them against each other. Who's above who? Who's better than who? It's right judgment, humble judgment, that the cross forces us to see that means that we'll be at peace. We needed Jesus to come and die for our sins. If we're Christians here today, it's not because we rely on ourselves. We have no status before God that we have earned. We're not great. We are wretched sinners. Sinners who naturally shake our fist at the God who made us. There can be no place for pride in our hearts. If only we saw ourselves as we truly are, we'd see that we have nothing to be proud about. So instead we must trust the cross. We must rely on him crucified. We must look to Jesus who forgives our sin to Jesus who endures our hell. 
and who brings us peace. Peace with God and through that, peace with everyone who follows Jesus with us. To follow Jesus is to follow the way of the cross. The way that sees, uh, the way that Jesus, the king of the universe, did not grasp at status, but became the slave of all. Who did not go for greatness, but humbled himself, even to death on the cross. And so to follow him is to say, I will trust him. And I will serve my Lord. I will serve the least of his little ones. And I will do it in his name and for his glory. Because his glory is my delight. Let's pray together.